The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And you also start to see other things, like just a longer-term, longer tail of impacts on that. Now, you had a generation of people who were starting businesses, and they were online businesses, and they couldn't. Even if they were able to get online, you know, three, four times a week, when the internet was put back on again, they couldn't build their lives and their businesses, so they were leaving. There was an exodus, there was a brain drain, that brain drain is still going on. The, the kind of full-spectrum disruption to the economy has been extraordinary. And we see that mirrored elsewhere. I mean, Kashmir is the same, you know, the digital economy is, is decades behind the rest, of, the rest of India. You see it in places like Kazakhstan, where the, the cost of the, of the blackout was, was measured in tens of millions, and that was only a few days. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 12th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. Internet blackouts are on the rise. Since 2016, governments around the world have fully or partially shut down access to the internet almost a thousand times, according to a tally by the human rights organization Access Now. As the power of the internet grows, this tactic has only become more common as a means of political repression. Why is this? And how exactly does a government go about turning off the internet? Evelyn Dueck and I spoke on this topic with Peter Guest, enterprise editor for the publication Rest of World, which covers technology outside the regions usually described as the West. He's just published a new project with Rest of World diving deep into internet shutdowns, and we dug into the mechanics of internet blackouts, why they're increasing, and their wide-ranging effects. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 12th when governments turn off the internet. So I was really excited when Rest of World, the publication you work for, popped up in 2020. I have always thought that people really should be paying much more attention to the way that tech issues they are reading about every day are playing out in other countries where, you know, often uh, the impacts are even more significant than they can be uh, in the developed world. But there's this kind of chicken and egg problem, I think, where people can't learn about those other issues because the publications weren't covering them. And so that meant that people weren't as interested in it, which meant that the publications wouldn't cover it as much. Um, so tell us a bit about the, the publication, Rest of World, its mission and what it covers. Sure. So as you say, Rest of World is just over two years old. It's headquartered in New York, but with bureaus in for other countries. The main mission is effectively to cover technology and its social impacts outside of what we classify as outside the Silicon Valley bubble, which is Silicon Valley itself, Northern Europe, North, uh, North America, and Australia, and New Zealand. So we kind of focus on the long tail of big tech. So Facebook, TikTok, and the moderation issues around the world. We look at disinformation and misinformation, and also just sort of startup culture and how that intersects with labor issues. And so I'm curious how you think about, you know, what makes a, a rest of world story. You're the enterprise editor, so I thought it might be interesting to ask how you go about looking for stories and what kinds of things you consider within rest of world scope. Um, as part of that, I wonder if you also might explain to our listeners just what you all mean by by rest of world, because it's it's a bit of a, a cheeky name for the publication. <laughs> sure. So to start with that, rest of world is a, a designation that you see on annual reports, on, on websites, on kind of other offices lists of, of major companies. So, you know, typically you'd have a, a North America office, a US office, a Europe office, and then rest of world, which could cover everything from sub-Saharan Africa to China. 
so it's it's a kind of a cheeky name, but honestly, it's something which I think resonates with a lot of people who live in those those areas who've kind of been on that rest of world tag for for decades now. Uh, so it's so yes, it's a little bit of identification with those people who live within what would be a, a rest of world location. In terms of the kind of stories that we cover, I mean, uh, the mission is really to, as I said earlier, to cover technology stories and, and technology's long tail in those countries. So there's things that are outside the eye line of, I guess, we classify as a Western consumer. But I think also often what we're trying to do is show technology stories that don't necessarily have a Western protagonist. So a lot of technology journalism is often focused around you know, mythic entrepreneurs, tech for good type entrepreneurs turning up in, in you know, countries classified as third world uh, and delivering a kind of very Silicon Valley type message. We're looking for stories that don't necessarily involve people like myself, you know, a, white British man uh, desperately trying to cover other parts of the world. So I'm curious how receptive you've found people to your work, given that sort of chicken and egg problem that I was uh, talking about at the top and sort of the audience that you've found for it. Because often I've been disappointed in this in general, like uh, uh, in the media um, cycles more generally, like an example that often comes to mind for me is the Facebook files, uh, where to me, most of the damning revelations that came out in those documents were how Facebook had like dramatically underinvested in developing countries by failing to provide even the most, you know, basic content moderation infrastructure. But instead, much of the news cycle and congressional IO was really consumed with Facebook's research on its effect on Western teenagers. And so I I think that that's telling uh, in terms of people's focus in, in these matters in general. And so I'm curious how you've found that and whether that's been a big challenge for you. I mean, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because the consumers of technology news are still, I think, largely, if not physically located, then kind of conceptually located in and around Silicon Valley. And even even your kind of global technologists are still kind of drawn into the center of gravity of big tech. So I think that there's an inevitability to that being where you focus your attention as a, as a publication. And, and to be clear, they're a substantial part of our audience in the sense that we have an obligation, we have a mission to try and educate people about how technology and the technologies that sometimes they are directly involved in impact people outside of their eye line. I think the other thing to think about is is really about what's the point of this kind of journalism. If you're looking for impact, ultimately the, the greatest impact on those companies will happen in in DC. It will happen in Brussels, and so to an extent, there's a there's a there's a kind of very practical reason to try and focus your coverage on things that will get into the eye lines of those regulators and those policymakers because that's where power lies. It shouldn't be where power lies because power power is not where the harm is in a sense, but it, it, that's a practical reality. Yeah, I will say as as someone who uh, lives in and writes about DC, it was extremely striking just if we look at the the Facebook files, for example, how much members of Congress focused on the portions that, you know, addressed the very real harms to American teenagers as opposed to the harms around the world. But so the immediate prompt for us to have you on was a, a big project you recently put out at Rest of World about the rise of internet shutdowns around the world. Can you just give us a high-level overview of what you wrote about? So the project was the culmination of a couple of years of work looking into access and the issue of deliberate internet shutdowns and restrictions of access. So this is something that's happened around about a thousand times in the last decade, uh, according to data from Access Now, which is an NGO that tracks these kind of uh, events. So we've specifically looked at it in Indonesia, so in West Papua, where there's an independence movement that's often had an online component. Uh, We've seen it in Sudan, where the military was trying to, first of all, impose control, and then again, tried later on to to reestablish control. And particularly for myself in Myanmar, um, after the coup in February 2021, when the junta shut down the internet in the early hours of the morning, uh, which was kind of the signifier for us that something was happening. We then subsequently saw it in Kazakhstan, where we covered it quite extensively as well. So the blackouts are essentially what they sound like. Somebody turns off the internet, which is either by tampering with the physical infrastructure or by imposing some sort of control over the internet service providers, which is what happened in in Myanmar, a combination of the two, in fact, is that wires are pulled out, 
you know, guns are taken into the uh, into the network centers and people are forced to turn things off. So we started to look at the, those things as individual events, but then started to try and examine them as a trend. So we started to talk to the people who were physically, first of all, affected by those shutdowns. So the journalists, the activists, the ordinary citizens, the business people who's, you know, who, who are disrupted by it. And then started to try and examine the mechanisms that we used. So we talked to telecoms engineers, we talked to executives at, uh, at ISPs and tried to just get them to, under, to understand what the actual anatomy of those shutdowns were. And what we found was, I mean, probably a bit more disturbing than we expected given the subject, which is just how vulnerable the, the internet as a physical thing is to this kind of interference. And then beyond that, we started to examine like, what, was the, what were the alternatives to the shutdowns. So in some countries that we've looked at started shutting down the internet a long time ago and actually have sort of tailed off on doing it. And we thought, why? Is that because they no longer feel the need to do that? Is it because you know, that the, the government's become more liberal or, or more progressive? But actually what we tended to find was that they've got better tools. Yeah, so I'm hoping you can talk us through a little bit more about the technical details because I found this piece of your reporting really, really interesting. Um, you know, the idea that a country can just sort of turn off the internet, which feels, you know, in, in these countries so pervasive, so sort of uh, in the ether rather than uh, something physical. And I, I gather from your reporting, as you were just sort of talking, that it really does depend on the country's particular infrastructure. And you've given a few examples there. Is it is it something that any uh, country can do? And is this sort of trend as, as part of, you know, countries working out how to do it? And how different are the different techniques that different countries use? So for a complete blackout, the techniques are, are relatively common. When we first started looking at Kazakhstan, for example, we saw all these references, particularly in other media outlets, to a kill switch. And so we went looking, is there, where is the kill switch? And it turns out the kill switch is a fax machine in the ministry. So literally all they had to do to, to get the internet shut down was fax the ISPs and say, turn it off. And they had the legal powers to do that, but they also had the, the kind of autocratic backbone, I guess you'd call it, to do that. They're able to impose their will even outside of the law to make that happen. So the ISP is simply just you know, towed the line and did it. In other instances, we've seen ISPs push back, but by and large, if a government in, a, in an authoritarian country tells you to turn off, you turn it off. So in some senses, that vulnerability is purely legal. It, it exists because the governments have given themselves the power to do it. In other places, I mean, obviously it's a lot harder. We obviously looked at some developed country or more, more, more economically developed country examples. And you look at somewhere like the US, where you have not only hundreds of ISPs, most of them privately owned, you have no real legal power to turn off turn off the internet and cause a disruption. And of course, you have a constitutional right to freedom of speech, which would make it very easy to challenge. So the kind of first level of threat is just purely legal. There are physical threats, although at a state level, we don't see them used very often. But interestingly, we have seen non-state actors target, physically target internet infrastructure. We saw that in Mali, we've seen that even in Mexico, where as a form of, almost as a form of, uh, of protest, or as a way of operating as, a, as a, um, a military or a paramilitary group, you shut down the internet with a, by attacking the physical infrastructure. That's actually quite easy if you're in a remote area. So in Mali, this is all mobile, mobile internet. So you just take down the mast. But then there's a kind of more pervasive and subtle type of threat, which isn't the full blackout. It's around, more around the sort of form of control over specific pieces of the internet and how they're used. And where we've seen that really, really happening is places like Russia, where the internet infrastructure is, is big, it's complex, it's slightly chaotic. You know, there's, we couldn't even find a very good estimate for how many ISPs there are in Russia, but the range that we found was anywhere between two and 13,000 different ISPs. You've got the internet entering the country in multiple different places. You've got laws applied just differently in different places and by different organizations. And frankly, you've got a censorship body, which wasn't particularly clear about what it expected. But then around about five years ago, they really started to invest in this. And so they started to build centralized lists of what services they wanted censored, of what websites they wanted censored. But they found, that they found it very difficult. For example, things like Telegram, they just couldn't shut it down. They really wanted to. They, they, they made orders to try and get the ISPs to do it, but the ISPs didn't know how to do it. So instead of you know, turning off the internet in various areas, they managed to find ways to turn off very specific pieces. So they used this thing called deep packet inspection, which I guess you guys probably have done quite a lot of research on in your work. But... It, very simply, it's a it's a form of network management tool created for a relatively innocuous use. 
but it allows you to look very in a very detailed way and automate automatically look in a very detailed way at the content of 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 packets of pieces of data flying around the internet it allows you to identify for example if a, if a piece of information flowing is is coming via a, a messaging service it's an encrypted messaging service it allows you to look in and see if something is coming via a virtual private network to allow you to escape censorship and the russian authorities decided to to roll this out on mass so Almost every ISP in the country has to have this thing called a TSPU box, which is a state-controlled deep packet inspector, which allows them to selectively turn off little bits of the internet. That's much more subtle. It's much more difficult to trace. It's much more it's much more insidious in the sense because the user doesn't necessarily know that they are having their their experience dramatically reduced. So that's a great overview. And I think it, it gets to something that really jumped out at me in your piece, which is that, you know, it's it's framed as internet shutdowns, internet blackouts. But what you're describing and and what you go into in, in great depth in your piece, and I definitely encourage listeners to go and look at, at some of the sort of visual graphic breakdowns you have, is a complicated taxonomy of not only different techniques that are used by governments and non-state actors to target the internet. So as you mentioned, you know, faxing a telecommunications company to turn the internet off, literally just taking down a pole, using this technology, deep packet inspection. Um, but also, you know, these are techniques that target different corners of the internet. So the mobile web, the full network, you've kind of got already gone into this, but could you give us sort of a, a breakdown of like the different ways that a blackout can manifest? Because I think you make clear it's not always, although it is sometimes, that nobody can get online in the country anywhere. So I think maybe looking at it purely in the form of, of blackouts or censorship is is a, is a little, is, is to narrow the spectrum of mechanisms of control that are used. And when we started looking at this, we really wanted to try and conceptualize it as as the continuum of control that you're able to to impose online and that spectrum does start with simple access is the internet on and accessible and shutting down for example the mobile internet but leaving basic telecom services active as was ha- as happened in Myanmar occasionally pushes people onto to re- onto uh, sms and onto fixed line communications, which are easy to monitor and tap, which immediately puts you into the same continuum as, as surveillance. So all of these things are interlinked along the, way, along the way. So you start off with that pure and simple controlling access, limiting access. The next step is, is limiting access of services. So for example, you may want to allow the economy to keep on running. You know, your ATMs still, still need to function. You still need to be able to send money in and out of the country. So you try and limit the individual platforms that people are using and the services that they're using. But again, that's actually very a very blunt instrument. Something we saw in Myanmar was as the government tried to use old school techniques to, to stop people using Signal, the encrypted messaging service, they started randomly blocking IP addresses from Amazon Web Services because, of course, it was hosted on AWS, which meant that whole swaths of the, of the internet economy in Myanmar were randomly being shut down. We also saw it when they tried to take down Twitter. They accidentally shut down Twitter across the entire of, of Southeast Asia, South, parts of South Asia. So these were blunt instruments. But again, they are, they're, they're a form of blackout in the sense that they are, they are targeting the things that people are using. Then further along that continuum is much more targeted censorship, which again goes back to the sort of deep packet inspectors that we talked about. There, there's an even greater overlap with surveillance. Some of the use cases for deep packet inspection we found, or we found, the Citizen Lab in Canada found, was actually injecting spyware using the deep packet inspector. So you would try to go to a certain website, but rather than taking being taken to that website, you were sent to a phishing link effectively. That that was used in, in Azerbaijan. It was used in uh, in Egypt. And then we've also tried to look at some other aspects of of what you'd call information control and censorship. So among those includes just Straight, straightforward cyber attacks. You know, we've seen a massive rise in DDoS attacks, uh, distributed denial of service attacks used on, for example, Exile Media. And we talked about this in one of the, the kind of subsidiary pieces to our package. If you if you talk to Exile Media organizations, you know, Iranian organizations, Philippine organizations, they are relentlessly under attack. And that's simple. Again, simply, that is a form of of censorship. It's an attempt to shut down that specific website, that specific service. 
and then there's, there's an even an additional part of a couple of parts of that continuum, which we don't necessarily go into in a huge amount of depth in the piece. One is surveillance, right? I think the the Pegasus NSO group scandals that we've seen covered over the last few years are absolutely part of the same continuum. It's a, it's a it's a way to make the internet and to make your devices unsafe, which leads to self censorship and it leads to control. And then even beyond that, I can keep on going because the spectrum goes a long way around, almost back to the start, is, is this kind of uh, agencies of, of, sometimes we call it dark PR, the influencer agencies, the bot campaigns, the cyberbullying, the reputation management tools, all of which are also a mechanism for control of the information space. And this full spectrum from turning off the internet to manipulating the narrative all feel is all part of the same the same mechanisms or uses the same the same kind of basic infrastructure of control and often it's used by the same people. Yeah, so along those lines, I think, you know, if you mention internet and censorship, the first thing that will usually come to people's minds is China's Great Firewall, but it's notable that you haven't mentioned China yet um, in this interview. And, you know, in the piece you go into that a bit about why that is, and that's, you know, China's model has not been so easy to replicate. And you say in the piece that you think Russia's uh, model is more likely blueprint for the shape of information control worldwide. And so I'm hoping that you can go into the difference a little bit on why you think Russia's model uh, is the one that might come to be replicated. Yeah, first of all, I mean, China's censorship is sophisticated. It is not total, but it's very, very comprehensive. The reason that we didn't go into it in great depth is it's also very hard to replicate. When the internet arrived in China, the authorities kind of baked censorship in. The, the, they maintained an enormous degree of control over the, the physical infrastructure, the technological infrastructure, and and the legal frameworks. So... Censorship is a given in China. That wasn't the case in Russia. You know, the Russian internet is distributed. It's chaotic. As we said earlier, it has thousands of ISPs. It's it's just simply not designed for censorship. Even though the authorities inherited some of the kind of previous generation's ideas around censorship, they never really were technically able to, to make that happen until a few years ago. So a few, I think maybe four or five years ago, some people see it, see, it, see it starting a little earlier, the desire to control information in Russia suddenly spiked due to rising political opposition, increasing paranoia in the state, but also in the availability of technology. So the Russian state has very effectively and relatively cheaply been able to impose censorship at the ISP level and this massively distributed system. The technology they've used is widely available, it's commercially available, and it's just a model that is relatively straightforward to replicate. I mean, we've we've seen the same technology being used to a lesser extent in, in pretty much all of the neighboring countries across Central Asia. We see it appearing in Southeast Asia. We even see the same kind of conversations being had around the, the, the sovereign internet, which is the Russian term for it, um, being had in, in places like Cambodia, in in Vietnam and other places. So that's why we, we kind of looked at Russia, because the ability to retrospectively and to sort of retrofit the internet for censorship just felt very alarming, uh, but quite compelling as an example. So... One of the other main examples you look at in the piece is the example of Egypt. Um, and you kind of point to Tahrir Square as the beginning of this trend of censorship of of blackouts, um, which I, I found so interesting um, because Tahrir Square is also, you know, one of the main examples people point to of the internet as a force for political organizing and how online connections and communications were a big part of what enabled the Arab Spring. But you sort of point to Egypt's response to that as kind of a, a shadow side. Can you talk us through why you identify Tahrir Square as sort of the starting point to this concerning trend? So I'm going to roll back to my personal history uh, to give a sense of this, because I'm of a certain vintage and I grew up trying to get into journalism, reading those early 2000s Wired magazines where you had this idea of tech utopianism and this real fervent belief that there was going to be a, a sort of reverse panopticon where you couldn't get away with anything because this sort of tech enabled sunlight would disinfect everything. And I think a lot of us bought into that. And so my early career was spent really covering that first wave of digitization in places like sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. 
And you saw those social shifts and the economic shifts. And North Africa in particular, Egypt and Tunisia, I remember just being in touch with all of these activists and citizen journalists who had just embraced the the, the internet and embraced the early years of social media to become effectively the political opposition. And it was mad. I mean, it was a mad era where you had genuinely bloggers being interviewed on, on CNN and in Time magazine as as the kind of forces for change in Egypt. It was like being scripted by Douglas Copeland or something. And it was it was kind of a narrative. It was it wasn't necessarily true. It was certainly an element of Western observers wanting to insert themselves into the story of the revolution as it happened. But then it, it was incredibly powerful. You know, Facebook, Twitter were being used by protesters to determine where they would turn up, what they would wear. They got enormous amounts of courage from one another and they projected that story out to the world. So if you were a long way away, you felt part of it even if it wasn't actually you getting tear gassed and getting shot at, but you felt like you were there on the ground. And that all really culminated in Tahrir Square. And I think a lot of people just sat there glued to their Twitter feeds watching it. I mean, I was covering it and speaking to people on the ground. And there was this moment where you could just feel the momentum. You could feel the state had lost control. And there was celebration, almost celebrations happening online, and they were far too premature. Because then late one night, they just pull the plug and the internet blinks off. And in the moment, all these people you've been speaking to are gone for five days. And there were TV cameras and you could see what was happening. But that personal connection was just severed. And I think the reason that we focused on it was twofold. One, it was a watershed moment. It was a moment where I think a lot of people realized that the tools you thought made you powerful were also vulnerable. They could be controlled, they could be disrupted, and the old mechanisms of power still held. But the other reason we really focused on it was just the resonance of what happened 10 years, almost to the day 10 years later in Myanmar. So that was very similar. Like those early days of the after the coup, we were talking to people on, on Telegram, on Signal, on, on over Twitter, direct messages, they, all this stuff was pouring out when the internet had come back on in the immediate aftermath of the coup. And then again, it would click off overnight. And it was the same It was the same feeling, but it was the same kind of social context and the same technique. And it just felt like a powerful continuity that we, we really had to kind of uh, to try and join those two events together. And so what is it over you know the course of that 10 years that has led to shutdowns becoming more common? Is it you know that the internet is becoming more of a threat to authoritarian governments or authoritarian governments are, are increasingly recognizing that threat? Is it increased technical capacity or willingness on the part of those governments? I'm curious what you see there. I think it's all of them. It's all of those. I think that there's certainly an element to which this has simply become part of the toolkit. As in, you see it in some places. India, for example, is a repeat offender. It's simply uh, one of the things that you do to shut down dissent. So you see that certainly in Kashmir, preemptive, preemptive shutdowns in, in ahead of things that they consider might be politically complex. I think some of it is around technical capability, but I think also some of it is around the the incapability of the the existing mechanisms of control and censorship. We talk a lot. We talked earlier, I think, a little about Telegram and Signal and other encrypted messaging services. We see those being used extensively by people trying to organise against governments, but also uh, you know by political movements and so on to build followings. Those things are very hard to shut down and censor. And so at moments of acute political distress, where you can't necessarily control the platforms, the only thing you can do is control the infrastructure. So I think that's a major, major reason why you see these kind of complete shutdowns happening more and more frequently. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I'm curious if you can contextualize this for a little bit for us in terms of internet shutdowns versus shutdowns of the rest of the media and how much governments are focusing on the internet and how much they're focusing on, you know, for want of a better word, sort of old school media and whether there's something about the participatory nature of the internet that makes it a, a particular threat or whether, you know, normally they come hand in hand or whether it's something like, you know, it might depend on the context and how under the thumb of the government, the the old school media, the, the television broadcasts, the radio broadcasts are. Is there something that is uniquely threatening uh, about the internet in these countries? 
So first, first of all, to say these things usually go hand in hand, and it's almost. I think it was, I don't think there's a single place that we've looked at where the repression that's happening online isn't mirrored by some form of repression that's happening on the street or in through kind of legal or quasi legal means. So controlling the internet is within it within a country. Uh, it's always part of a continuum of, again, I use that word a lot, but we like to see these things as being part of, of a fuller spectrum of behaviours. But I think there is something uniquely, there's something unique about the internet. And it comes from, I mean, the fact that we are speaking from different countries on the same internet. I think it's very easy to discredit international media in, in a country which has a very controlled information space. There's a lot of narratives that you can spell about the use of, you know, of, about the BBC or about Al Jazeera or about CNN, right? These things can be, you know, the narratives can be manipulated. They can be held up as, as foreign actors and so on. But person-to-person communication and the kind of mass-sourced communication and direct diplomacy is so powerful that you need to find quite dramatic ways to isolate it. I think... Something that we've seen as a development over the last few years uh, is is the idea of a sovereign internet, of separating your version of the internet from everybody else's version of the internet. And I think implicit in that is a, is an attempt to shut off the truth from your version of the truth. And I think that's why the internet in particular becomes a target in these instances. It is something which is, it cannot be discredited. It cannot be, you know, you cannot be isolated. It can't, it can't be controlled. I also wanted to ask you about, you know, the way that people in these situations seek to avoid um, internet censorship or evade it rather uh, with things like VPNs. Uh, There was conversation recently about Elon Musk sending Starlink satellites over Ukraine to help Ukrainians uh, stay online during the invasion. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the techniques that people use. And I'm curious whether you think, you know, workarounds like these are going to be developed more and more as governments seem to be escalating their crackdowns? So there are a variety of ways that people stay online. The most common one uh, that we tended to use to talk to people in the middle of shutdowns is where someone's left a bit of the internet on. So in Sudan, for example, we were finding people were talking on on corporate networks that remained online, presumably because they had some link to the government or the financial system. So there are pockets of internet that sort of stay connected. Sometimes you'll find a hotel that has a satellite link, um, which happened in West Papua. So there's definitely ways that people kind of find their way on. In Myanmar, Certainly in areas closer to the borders with other countries, you found people, there's a good trade in in smuggled SIM cards from Thailand or other places. People do tend to find some way online, but they're not particularly effective ways. And en masse, people aren't going to do that. Finding ways around censorship is slightly easier. There's a lot of commercial VPN providers which do allow people a certain ability to get access. I'd say there's two two things there to to be concerned about. One is that increasingly it is possible to disrupt, if not totally block VPNs and things like Tor and Siphon. They are being um, targeted, certainly in places like Russia. The effectiveness of those blocks isn't 100%, but it's there. And the other thing is it takes quite a lot of effort to use these workarounds. Like you or I may work very hard to find a way around some mass censorship to get onto a platform to communicate but your average internet user may not which means that the people who who are who are kind of passive consumers of information are also the least likely probably to then go and actively try and find their way around censorship so where you have imposed control over the information space you don't necessarily then need to do much to disrupt those alternatives what was the second half of your question oh just whether you think that we'll see more things being developed yeah that's a really interesting question. My cynical and pessimistic answer is not fast enough. My realistic answer is probably not at all. So Starlink, I, I, I'm going to be very careful about what I say about Starlink because you know, I know that there's a, there's a rather uh, aggressive group of people that are very, very strong supporters of it. But Ukraine's been a really interesting example of its use. And I think that we certainly have seen people who are very grateful for its deployment. It is not necessarily straightforward to get Starlink into the hands of the people that need it in a short-term crisis. 
you can deploy a Starlink terminal, you know, relatively quickly, but how often has that actually happened? One of my colleagues was work, has worked on a story relatively recently looking at Starlink in Tonga. And it was quicker to get an, an undersea cable repaired than it was to get Starlink up, up and operational. Beyond that, look at the economic case for it. You know, this is an expensive piece of kit. It's an expensive service. And a tiny minority of its users are, working, are using it outside of the West. It, it's a use case, again, my colleagues work on this has been excellent, is on luxury yachts, not in northern Myanmar. So I think that these these solutions are great, but they are still part of that discussion that we talked about earlier, that 1990s, 2000s tech is going to save us. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think that the solutions to this probably come, if you're talking about a corporate solution to this, it comes with some form of agreement among telecoms providers that they are not going to shut the internet down not from someone sending a satellite link. But then, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe we will find a more cost-effective way of deploying that kind of technology. But uh, again, where's the, where's the economics? Yeah, so I just want to <laughs> echo your thoughts there about Megan Tubin's story on Starlink, which was absolutely fantastic. And I think another great example of why <laughs> listening to perspectives or digging into perspectives from the rest of the world is is really important in terms of giving a completely different side to stories that we hear in, in Western media. And this is sort of related to that, uh, which I think, you know, one of the things that your story highlights is how the internet affects society. It, it, that's not as simple as sometimes is depicted in the mainstream press over here. I think often the dominant narrative of the past half decade has been that social media is so harmful to societies that the world would often be better off without it. I remember this headline from Kara Swisher in the New York Times in 2019 that said, uh, Sri Lanka shut down social media. My first thought was good um, with the subheading that as a tech journalist, I'm ashamed to admit it, but this is how bad the situation has gotten. And that just at the time so obviously struck me as ridiculous and, you know, sort of reflective of a very privileged perspective. I think for many of us uh, here in develop in the developed world, you know, we're so well connected that we can get information and connection with our friends and, and colleagues and family in many ways other than just social media. But I think, you know, in, in, in many contexts, the internet and social media is a much more essential form of, of communication as your story demonstrates. And, you know, to my mind, a complete blackout is, is always a bridge too far. And, you know, that there may be no blanket answer as to exactly, you know, where the line is. But, you know, I, I think it would be great to just hear you sort of talk about a little bit more the effects of this on on countries when the internet is is totally blacked out and you know whether because often another side of the story is that state actors use the internet to spread disinformation to whip up you know hate speech and aggression and things like that and so how this trade off plays out in in the context that you looked at i mean i think the context that we've probably examined in the most depth is myanmar because we began reporting on that as as the coup happened and i think you can see some see there the full spectrum of abuses of the internet so for a start you entered into in the november 2020 months before the coup a, a profoundly toxic information space right huge quantities of misinformation spreading on on youtube on, on facebook on tiktok and attempts to address that um after the kind of rather grim history of it there but you already had this kind of poisoned information space where narratives around state capture by foreign interests by of corruption and so on had proliferated to a, to an extraordinary extent and then a couple of months later when the coup actually happened you had this sudden severing of the links with the outside world for for just a whole generation of people who had only really, in a sense, that they'd only come onto the internet very, very recently. You know, Myanmar had this separation from the the rest of the world for for quite a long time in terms of huge amounts of censorship. The internet was very, very controlled and barely available, plus economically not accessible until after the the kind of semi handover of power. And so you had this generation of of kind of young people who were entrepreneurs who were you know exchanging ideas and exchanging money and exchanging kind of general social interaction with the, with the rest of the world who were kind of cut off. So 
people at the time, you know, I remember having getting, you know, SMS messages from people and they actually were saying and describing it as like, as like being suddenly plunged into darkness because their life was in some, to some large extent online. So there was that sort of social impact. There was also the, their ability to, to organize, which was, I think, well covered, but also their ability to stay safe. So they were not able to trust what was being said on the radio, on the state TV, or in the newspapers, or, or in the handbills hundred around the streets. So they didn't know which parts of the, the city to go to that were safe. They didn't know, they didn't know how, whether their, their family and friends were safe. They didn't know uh, how to kind of get hold of, of basic necessities at times. So that kind of just the general functioning of their lives was, was massively disrupted. And you also start to see other things, like just a longer term, longer tail of impacts on that. Now, you had a generation of people who were starting businesses and they were online businesses and they couldn't. Even if they were able to get online, you know, three, four times a week when the Internet was put back on again, they couldn't build their lives and their businesses. So they were leaving. There was an exodus. There was a brain drain. That brain drain is still going on. The, the kind of full spectrum disruption to the economy has been extraordinary. And we see that mirrored elsewhere. I mean, Kashmir is the same. You know, the digital economy is is decades behind the rest of the rest of india you see it in places like kazakhstan where the, the cost of the of the blackout was was measured in tens of millions and that was only a few days so yeah the the the, the costs sort of fracture throughout the economy and throughout society I thought that was such an interesting point that you made in your piece that we often don't talk about as well. It's not just the, you know, the cost to free speech and communication, but the, the very real economic costs, which, you know, as soon as I read it, as soon as you're saying it now, it's like, well, duh, that's, that's so obvious. And it strikes me that that would, you know, affect government decision making as well, because in some sense, you know, shutting down the communication system gives them a level of control over, over society and what people know. But the economic costs for them would be a, a massive countervailing consideration. And I'm wondering if that's what you saw if you know at, at some point the costs of shutdown become too great even though were it otherwise the government might have taken that step absolutely i, th- I think that's we, we can only speculate right because it, it isn't as though the, the ministries of information and communication of these countries were were kind of responding to our phone calls and saying yeah that's why we did it or that's why we didn't and of course we don't know the counterfactuals like we don't know where a, a shutdown was considered and wasn't and the action wasn't taken I mean, I would say that the the progress of this trend suggests that those calculations are still coming down on the side of, of turning the internet off. You know, you see a lot of repeat offenders and you also see first time offenders. I think I think the cost benefit analysis in the minds of, of, of someone who is shutting down the internet is such that they would happily pay the price. And again, you look at when those things happen, you know, particularly we've looked at a lot of sub-Saharan African examples. It's almost entirely just ahead of an election or during an election period. Um, you look at it in India and again, it's it's around potential flashpoints or protests. Like this is, this is a calculation that's being made uh, around how much it's worth shutting it down at this moment. And I think at the moment we're seeing generally people are making the calculation it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we also see that in Russia currently, right? I mean, that there's not only the the brain drain of people leaving the country in response to repression, but, you know, I know there are a lot of Russians who use Instagram to, you know, grow small businesses and, and sell products and that that's just completely been shut off. And the regime there seems to have made the call that this is worth it. This is, you know, very intentionally, along with the sanctions, a, a cost that they're going to shoulder. I, I think so, yeah. And um, I think it would be interesting to see the calculations as they are made at the centre. Uh, I do think that in some instances, governments are underestimating the cost of a shutdown. Because I think that we often underestimate the value of, for example, social media platforms. And I think about you know, platforms like Instagram. It isn't just Russia. Instagram is, is a storefront in large parts of the world it's an economic tool more than it is a social sharing tool same with facebook same with whatsapp so i think that it's quite possible that they simply weren't they they simply didn't have a good estimate of what the cost was going to be but again we have no way of finding out uh, at this point in time yeah and it's worth adding that in Russia and perhaps in other countries in in these kinds of contexts, it may not be the result of totally rational cost-benefit analysis that that leads to the decisions. It it could be, uh, you know, just speculating uh, some other motive or some other motivation. 
Absolutely. No, entirely. And I think that's that's entirely the point, right? I think that it is interesting to see the countries that are continuing to use shutdowns and the countries like Egypt that have sort of moved away from it. And I think there is a an element to which countries that are quite well connected with the world, countries which have tourist economies, which are very dependent on foreign direct investment, or and especially from foreign direct investment in not from other autocracies and authoritarian states, are, I think, more hesitant to use this tactic. So I, I want to go back to something we touched on a little bit at the beginning when, when you were talking about non-state actors um, taking down the internet. But there's also uh, some interesting stuff in your reporting about the role of private companies that are sort of enabling this to some extent and making internet censorship into what you describe as uh, an off-the-shelf product. Can you talk a little bit about how that works and what this might mean for the role that other countries might play here in terms of regulating the suppliers of those technologies? I think a lot of focus has quite rightly been on surveillance technology in the last few years uh, and the NSO group and Pegasus and, and some of its competitors and partners. And I think that focus is somewhat misses the point that this is a much broader industry of surveillance, of censorship, and of supplying the tools of repression to authoritarian countries. I think that the commodification of some of this tech, this this technology has allowed that in the sense that people really aren't looking at it. Some of the tools that we talk about in in our in our reporting, in particularly this deep packet inspection, it's dual use technology. It's relatively innocuous. You know, it's developed for network management, and most of the ISPs in the US in Europe will will use it, as do all the network administrators of large companies and so on. It's used to to manage the flow of of data. It's used to to cut out some particularly unpleasant or, or illegal content uh, from networks entirely. But it can also be used for censorship. It allows it allows a a sensor to impose quite targeted controls over platforms and over individual sites and, and content. But I think the the fact that it's it is relatively innocuous and it's kind of basic use means that there are very few controls over it, which means that it's really a decision of the companies that are selling it as to whether or not they are comfortable making sales to, for example, a country in the Middle East that is going to use it to to, to shut down or to survey LGBTQI activists, or whether they're going to be allowed their, their technology to be used in Belarus to throttle social media services, and because that exists in the kind of in the in the moral judgment of the companies themselves, it's somewhat of a grey area, and it, and it continues. Right, uh, we, we as we were reporting on this, we found more and more and more examples, often in press releases on company websites, where they are talking about. We have sold this to the Ministry of Communications in this country to prevent the use of encrypted voice messaging services. You know, they're, they're out there advertising it. Yeah, that's really extraordinary because just to underline the point that you're saying, you know, how much could these companies plead ignorance? You were talking about how m most of these technologies, many of these technologies, maybe you can uh, answer that, are dual use technologies. You know, they have good use cases and, and, and maybe it's helpful to talk about that a bit more. Given that they have those good use cases, how, you know, how much would it be totally foreseeable as they sell them to these governments that they would be used for these, you know, nefarious ends rather than for the, for the more useful ends? So... I'm going to be very cautious to use the word good. But, you know, there, there are justifiable use cases even for surveillance tools, right? And there's a bit of a distinction. So I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an expert in, in arms control or, or sort of uh, this technological technology control. But some of the things that we've seen, the trends that we've seen, include the kind of distinction between selling products and selling services. So surveillance is an excellent example of this. Some of the companies that sell the sort of intrusion and surveillance tools sell them as products. So what they do is they sell that to a police service somewhere in the world. And they say, well, look, it's not really our fault if that product is used by that, that police force to in, you know, impinge on the rights of an activist or break the law in that country. That's not on us. That's a product. You know, we sold them a hammer. It's not our fault that they did something wrong with it. Sometimes they sell services. If they sell a service, I am intruding on this person's phone. There's kind of no get out. 
but sometimes they kind of work in this gray area, right? They will sell a product plus support. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of the decisions need to get made. If you are selling a piece of kit or a piece of software to a country which is widely known to restrict access to its citizens using technology like yours, and you have people operating in that country adjacent to that ministry, you have very few ways to argue that you are not in some way complicit. I'm being very careful in the way that I kind of phrase this, <laughs> uh, and I apologize. But but I think that's something we see a lot, is that there are kind of rhetorical ways to say how would we possibly have known, but when you actually examine them in depth, you you start to question that. I'm curious also if you have a sense of just how expensive these tools are. I mean, is this a situation where more governments around the world would be using them if if they were cheaper, easier to access, or will they become more widely used if they become more sort of financially available? So the kind of basic deep packet inspection tools that we talked about, they're pretty cheap. I think one of the boxes that we looked at was around $6,000, so relatively affordable. I think one thing to say on the kind of more expensive end, so your your NSO groups and so on, which can run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for a license, is that no matter how expensive they, they are, they the imbalance of wealth and the imbalance of power in that will always, always favour the government because the people they are going to be targeted are going to be have substantially fewer resources. So something that we saw quite a lot as we were looking at this was how, for example, governments didn't need to resort to the really the really high-end tools and kit because they were targeting, you know, a group of activists. You've got a group of people in the Philippines who are, you know, doing human rights monitoring. Their their annual budget is a fraction of the cost of one of the licenses for the cheapest intrusion tools. So that imbalance is always going to be there. So the cost in a sense it, it is important and you know it does it does mean that your you know, as it comes down, more and more governments are going to be able to use it. But I think the real issue is in the differential between the capabilities of, of states and the capabilities of ordinary citizens. So kind of as a closing thought, you know, the, the picture that you've painted today is a pretty grim one. They're, they're not good trends and they're not good effects. And it's certainly a very different story to, you know, as we were talking about before, dark second act to the story of tech liberation during the Arab Spring about the liberating effects of these technologies around the world. And so I guess I'm, you know, as a, as a general question, you can take and answer this however you like. How has reporting on the rest of the world, you know, made you feel about the role of tech? Does it make you feel optimistic about the future role of tech? Or are you sort of, in light of stories like this and some of the other reporting that you've done, more more cautious and maybe more pessimistic? Are we, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> it depends what word you want to use. <laughs> I, 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 what I was going to say is I, I think we're fucked. Um, we're definitely doomed. Um, Excellent. I, look, I think it is pretty grim. It's a pretty bleak picture. I, I think, again, talking about differentials, though, I think you mentioned it earlier. Like We live in a relatively privileged environment. And even for us, speaking at least for myself, sitting in the UK, the the internet as I experience it is a bad place. <laughs> um, we've seen mass manipulation. We've seen, you know, I mean, not to talk about sort of censorship and control, but just the fracturing and fragmentation of a shared sense of reality is is terrifying. And I think that we are in an era of governments being incapable of understanding and of reacting and of regulating in any kind of way that that has a meaningful impact they are way behind and i don't see how they catch up and i think the the ability as i said earlier of the ordinary citizen to to operate within that space with that substantial technical knowledge is is small i mean i'm i'm not a technology journalist by background i've kind of come to it by by accident and just the things that i find myself having to do to stay ahead and stay safe online are vastly more complicated than I expected with the plug-and-play internet of 2010. So in that environment, how does this end well? 
I left a pause there because I wasn't sure what I was going to fill it with. And then I thought, no, that's, that's, I, I can't think of anything else. That's, that's where we are. We are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'll, I'll just, I'll end it on that pessimistic note. Pete, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. <laughs> You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This Friday, May 13th, Benjamin Wittes will be sitting down with experts to discuss the latest intelligence transparency report. What does it tell us, and what do we still not know? The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Isabel Kirby McGowan of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>